Welcome back. Today we're looking at the second chapter of Miracles by C.S. Lewis. One of, my, one of my favorite things about this chapter, as it turns out, is actually just the title. Uh, the title is The Naturalist and the Supernaturalist. You know, are you crazy? This is a weird guy. He gets excited about titles. What's going on there? Well, well, let's think about this. If we were all writing this book, what might we have titled this chapter? And I'm betting that nine out of 10 of us would have defaulted to titling this Naturalism and Supernaturalism. That is to say, we would have focused on ideas rather than persons. But, but Lewis is wise, and it is one of the reasons he is worth reading. When, when we treat these issues, when, or excuse me, when, he, when, when Lewis treats these issues, he's always interested in, in persuading actual persons. So, so often when we're, when we're learning how to defend the faith or, or learning how to converse about ideas with others through, through our teenage years and on into our 20s, we have a tendency to simply want to knock over ideas. We sometimes get the, the impression that learning to defend the faith is learning to knock down labels. So the, so the strategy becomes learning what labels people have. You know, that person's an atheist or a naturalist or a socialist or whatever. And then we have a set of sort of talking points to knock over those labels. Here's my arguments against atheism. Here's my arguments against naturalism, et cetera, et cetera. But the but the problem is that people are almost always more complicated than their labels. And people don't always mean precisely with the same things with those labels. They are, first of all, uh, people are attracted to the labels they take on for a host of reasons. And second of all, perhaps mean slightly different things by them. And Lewis is great at this. Lewis is really good at this because if you watch the particular moves he makes, he often anticipates several intellectual moves and motivations someone might have to call themselves a naturalist or whatnot. Uh, in any case, chief, chief among Lewis's virtues is that he is really interested in persuading actual persons. A naturalist is not the same thing as naturalism in sneakers, as my as my friend Peter might put it. Uh, so, so remember when you're when you're talking to people that you're always engaging with a, with a whole soul, a whole person whose ideas have a quite complex relationship to all that they really are. And what you want to win over in the end, what you want to persuade in the end is an actual concrete whole person, not just to knock down with talking points, a kind of abstract idea. And this might involve, persuading a person might in fact involve and ordinarily does involve refuting ideas in some ways, but even this requires graciously taking down an individual person's version of that idea rather than the, the abstraction itself. All right. Let's talk about this chapter more directly. At the get-go, Lewis provides a first gesture toward defining a miracle for us. He says, quote, I use the word miracle to mean an interference with nature by supernatural power, end quote. Lewis is, is keen to point out in a footnote that this is not a theologian's definition, and he's quite right about that. They might get a little fussy with him about this, but, but Lewis is just simply getting us off the ground here. This is a first motion of the mind to help us out, and it is basically what most of us intuitively think of when we think of a miracle. It could all, it could all be qualified, of course, but it just helps us, helps us get the conversation rolling. Um, and of course, we even with his little definition, we immediately run into problems. Uh, if miracles are an interference in nature by a supernatural power, just what do we mean by nature here? What does it mean to interfere in nature? This chapter, after all, isn't quite about miracles, but about naturalists and supernaturalists. Common word there, nature. <laughs> what does nature mean in both of those terms? 
Lewis surveys uh, in the chapter, you'll, you'll see a, a handful of usages of the term nature and concludes that what basically unites the usages is some sense of uh, something that kind of works on its own. That is, when we say something is natural or does something according to nature, what we mean is that it has a kind of intrinsic drive to be a certain way and to relate to its surroundings in a certain way left to itself, uninterfered with, it will just do thus and such. An acorn in its natural habitat will by nature become an oak tree. Now, of course, it's, it's not quite so simple. Other natural things are required. It might be better to say that an acorn will naturally become an oak tree when water and soil by their own intrinsic doing their work by themselves, as it were, combine with it in order to produce an oak tree. Similarly, it might be, be natural for humans to interfere with this in such a way that uh, we, we take up and eat acorns rather than allowing them to become oak trees. But this is just our behaving according to our nature and inner impulses and our drives to survive, etc. So, you know, that's a, that's a first motion, but what, how does that become a, what is, what is a, a naturalist then? What do we mean by naturalism? Uh, Lewis, Lewis says that a, a naturalist believes this, quote, the ultimate fact, the thing you can't go behind is a vast process in space and time, which is going on of its own accord. Inside that total system, every particular event, such as you're sitting and reading this book, in our instance, me talking to you right now, <laughs> happens because some other event has happened. In the long run, because the total event is happening. Each particular thing, such as this page, uh, is what it is because other things are what they are. And so eventually, because the whole system is what it is, end quote. So, so everything in nature works in a certain way, albeit with the possibility of being limited by other things in nature. But when you take everything together as a whole, and that's the big thing to see here, this is what naturalism is. When you look at everything together as a whole, you get an entire self-contained system that is just self-existent, operates on its own. Everything happens by virtue of its placement within that total order of natural things. So in a certain way, everything has its own nature, its own characteristic way of, of sort of showing itself within the, within the community of, of other things. Uh, but just as in human society, one, one, one's, one's activities are, are limited and largely determined by the community of which one is a part. So individual things, natures of, of individual things, acorns or whatnot, are limited by other things around them. But, but everything, at all the, all the time manifests nature as a singularity, as a whole system as such. Nature uh, then is sort of the, the whole collection of things and their relationships outside of which there is nothing. A naturalist then believes that this kind of collection of individual natures, this interacting set of things, or, or nature then considered now as a singularity, uh, singularity is the one fact. And naturalists believe that that collection of things is the one thing, if you, if you could put it that way. All these natures co constitute the one nature. Uh, so that's, that's what they mean by nature and therefore are a naturalist. Uh, the, the parts are determined by the whole that just is then in and of itself. It exists in and of itself. The supernaturalist, Lewis goes on to say, actually agrees that there is one independent fact, one non-dependent thing that exists in and of itself, but the supernaturalist identifies this at least typically with God rather than with nature. 
what we call nature then is radically contingent upon the creative activity and sustaining activity of God. And so the, the supernaturalist, in contrast with the naturalist, believes that God is the ultimate one, the ultimate fact, if you will, outside of whose being there is no being, and sees nature as existing uh, by a contingent and free gift of God, an act of God in, in making it and sustaining it in being. So there's a, there's a realm of independent self-existence, which just is God himself, and everything we call nature is the realm of dependent and derived existence. And so in making this distinction, Lewis is, of course, drawing upon a, a traditional philosophical uh, uh, discussion concerning God. That is the, the classical argument that God is necessary and not dependent upon anything else, whereas creation is unnecessary. It need not have been and is contingent and dependent upon something other than itself. He doesn't argue. Now, in this chapter, Lewis doesn't argue for the existence of God, but rather just makes the distinction for us. He's just trying to help us grasp that distinction. If you're, if you're interested, however, in pursuing that argument, you might look up uh, Michael Augeros. Uh, I think high schoolers would be able to get through this pretty well. Michael Augeros is uh, uh, who designed the designer. As you, can, as you can tell from the title, Augeros gets at the typical retort, you know, if the, if, the, if the world needs an explanation, why doesn't God need an explanation? Or, or who designed the designer, as some put it? Uh, and as it does turn out, people have thought about that question before, uh, but I digress. All right. <laughs> So we've got a, a basic definition of the naturalist and the supernaturalist. One thinks that nature goes on of itself and names the totality of existent things. The other thinks that only God is self-existent and that nature is intrinsically derivative of God and dependent upon him. But Lewis says something else that is especially crucial. And I think that, a, that, that especially younger folks would do well to pay attention here. <laughs> Lewis does not say that the difference between the naturalist and the supernaturalist is the same as the difference between the atheist and the theist. And as it turns out, there are plenty of non-atheistic naturalists. Even the ancient pagans, for instance, were somewhat naturalist, or you could read them as somewhat naturalist, because the gods, the ancient gods, you know, all your Zeus's and whatever, did not exist outside the total order of things, but were actually part of the order of nature conceived of as in this larger sense. They were often portrayed as subject to the fates in the same way that man is subject to the fates. And so the eradication of the gods from the cosmos did not necessarily eradicate the kind of underlying world picture in which the gods lived, a kind of self-enclosed cosmic structure with no reality outside of itself. But it's also the case that there are many contemporary philosophies of God and even some, some theologians and churches that you're likely to encounter in your life who will speak very similarly to the way you might about God in various circumstances, but who will think of God as so united with nature and the development of the natural that miracles are still impossible for them. God doesn't interfere with creation because he's not outside of creation. He's just part of it, or maybe it's part of him, depending on which person you're talking to. Miracle on this position tends to be, miracles in these views tends to be, tend to be reinterpreted in naturalistic ways. All right, two more things. First, note toward the end of the chapter, 
that Lewis uh, shows that there's a couple ways in which we can still speak about the supernatural. One of them, of course, is the tr more traditional image of the supernatural that we've talked about so far, this kind of, you know, kind of divine intrusion metaphor, if you will. And perhaps that'll be clarified for us later. There's, there's, there's ways, again, which we could amend thinking of it that way. Nevertheless, it, it helps us just for the moment. But then he also says that we can think about the supernatural as something like commerce between two worlds that would not ordinarily interact apart from divine power, divine allowance that they interact. And he uses the metaphor there of sort of an author writing two books, right? You know, he, Lewis himself wrote the Narnia books and he wrote the space trilogy books. Uh, and they're both from him, but there's no interaction in this world with this world, at least not that I'm aware of. I don't know that Lewis ever wrote a, any episode where characters from one and characters from the other interact. These are kind of two different histories, if you will, non-interacting. Uh, but, but, but presumably Lewis, the author, could have made it such. He could have written a short story, a sort of crossover episode, if you will, <laughs> where characters from one and characters from the other did interact. And so he wants to think of this that, that being one model, one way of thinking about perhaps how the supernatural could work. Uh, uh, though, uh, again, pay attention to his distinction between two different kinds of natures uh, in that particular section. And then secondly, Lewis is keen to make the point that we have, we have not yet claimed or defended the actual fact of miracles. One could in fact be a supernaturalist and never actually make the claim that miracles do or in fact have occurred. It is rather, writes Lewis, that quote, if we decide that nature is not the only thing there is, then we cannot say in advance whether she is safe from miracles or not, end quote. And that's a crucial step in the argument. Lewis is simply trying to help us understand reality well. Even if we later conclude that the world does not in fact contain any miracles, he's attempting to demonstrate to us the irrationality of holding that the universe is safe from miracles. It is this, of course, that will put us in the fitting position to actually examine individual miracle claims. All right, so that'll do for this session. Next time we'll go over chapter three. Thanks for joining me and I look forward to, look forward to seeing you again next time.